sung about the holiness of God today and reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You are to be holy, therefore, as your heavenly Father is holy. Well, you think about that for just a moment. You think about how He is set apart. He's above all. And there is no sin in the presence of God. He is perfect. And, and then He calls us out of our sin and He lifts us up so that we can dwell where He is by the blood of Jesus. That's an amazing thought. And this church that we're going to talk about today, as we look again in the book of Revelation chapter 2, you can be fine in your place there. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, we're going to look at the church of Pergamum. They're a worldly church that have compromised in their convictions and have allowed the world to come into the church rather than that church going out into the world with the gospel. And, and so the Lord Jesus is going to reprimand this church and warn this church of what's coming up against them. Jesus is introduced as the one who has that sharp, two-edged sword. And that's a reference to the living and active ministry of the Word of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the church is, I, I'm going to have to go to war with you over my word. And my word is going to war against this church if it doesn't get it straight. Now that's a warning for any church of any age that if we begin to compromise on the truth, if we begin to live like the world and we, be, we allow sin to reign, then we're at war with the, with the word of God. That's not a good place to be. The Bible says it's like a sharp two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. And it reveals what's inside of us. God's word is living and active. And, it, and through the word, Jesus said in John 17, that, that the Lord Jesus is sanctifying his church. He's making us holy through his word. But you don't want to be at war with the word of God. You don't want to be at odds with the word of God. We all have to collectively come under the authority of the word of God. No one is exempt from the authority of the Word of God. And so if God says it in His Word, then you need to trust it and obey it. That's the only way that you're going to be the Christian that God wants you to be. And so we talk about worldliness. We're going to talk about worldliness today. And I just want to hit this real quick before we get into the text. And then we'll read the text together. Worldliness is immorality. In other words, going against God's Word that leads to idolatry, immorality that leads to idolatry. That's what worldliness is. And God is calling the church to get up, church up, out of worldliness. Why don't you stand with me and we'll read and hear what the Spirit says to the church of Pergamum. Verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. 
so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let us pray together. Father God, we are thankful for your word. And we pray, Lord, now that your word would penetrate deeply within our hearts. And Lord, uh, like a surgeon's scalpel, we would allow you to do surgery, to remove whatever is within us that's not of you. And Lord, to, to add anything of you that's not there. The things of you that we need desperately for our souls. And Father, we pray that we wouldn't be resistant to that work, Father. We wouldn't oppose your word today. We wouldn't oppose your work today, Lord. And Lord, you would never have to war against your church with your word. But Lord, we would be in full agreement with your word. We would never compromise our convictions. We would stand in the truth. Lord, sanctify us for your word is truth today. Lord, if there's one here that has never given their heart and faith and trust to you, I pray, Lord, that today they would be saved. Today would be the day of salvation. And then during our invitation today, they would be giving their heart to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Worldliness, immorality that leads to idolatry was swamping this church in Pergamum. But I want to share with you this truth, and it may be hard for you to swallow, but I want you to hear it, and we're going to flesh it out. You can't have your sin and Jesus too. You can't hold on to your sin and you can't hold on to the world and still be holding on to Jesus at the same time. You just can't do it. And so the Lord Jesus is constantly calling us out of sin and He's calling us to repent and He's telling us that we need to put our faith in Him, not in the things of the world. When we hold on to the things of the world, we don't have hands to hold on to Jesus. And so Jesus is going to correct that. But before he corrects that, he starts out with the compliment. You know, Jesus is complimentary, right? He gives us compliments when we do things that we're supposed to do. Amen. And some of us need to learn how to do that sometimes for other people. We need to focus more on the good things that people do and tell them about it and encourage them so that you can lift them up. And Jesus isn't about putting this church down. Jesus doesn't want Pergamum to feel down and out. He wants to lift them up so that they can have victory over their sin. And so he starts out with the compliment. Now listen to the compliment again. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, if you think about Pergamum for just a minute, historically, that place uh, was truly Satan's abode. It was filled with pagan idolatry. It was filled with all kinds of evil, sorcery. It was filled with all kinds of sexual immorality. It was the same as what we might call a, a city today in America. <laughs> it was just full of the devil. And he goes on to say it's where Satan's throne is. Now, the, historically what we understand was that there was a massive, ornate, marble altar to Zeus that overlooked the city of Pergamum. And now it's housed, uh, of all places, 
in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. Um, that's where it is today. You know that the, the synagogue of Satan in Smyrna, that was a Jewish gathering. Well, this is a pagan, cultic place of worship where people went up those steps up to that altar and made sacrifices to Zeus. And Jesus calls it the throne of Satan. And he says, I understand that you are living right next to the throne of Satan. Jesus says, I understand that about you. You're in the world. But Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. He calls us to, to go out into the world and, and take the gospel into the world, but to never become part of the world. We're not of the world. We've been born again and born from above. So we can't look like the world and we can't compromise on, on the things of the world. But, but this church was, was right next to, the Bible says, the throne of Satan. And some of them were going right up those steps and offering themselves to the devil. And so he goes on to say, I know that you're there, and I know where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. See, there was a time where the church was unwilling to compromise, and they were holding fast the name of Jesus. And the pastor of the church who had been placed there by the Apostle John named Antipas because he was standing firm and he was resisting the pagan influences around him, he was killed because of it. Tradition states that he, during the reign of Domitian, he was roasted in a bronze ox-shaped bowl during Domitian's reign. Now you think about that. The pastor of the church was killed because he would not worship Satan I have something else I want to show you. This is an image of a coin from the second century. Uh, this is similar to what all the coins of Pergamon would have looked like. But there's the emperor, uh, Caracula, and he's standing there saluting a serpent, which they had given a, a pagan name. Uh, Saluus was the, the goddess that was being worshipped there. But we know who the real serpent is. We know who the devil is, right? He's the serpent, the bronze serpent. And here he is, you know, worshiping that serpent. And so this is an image of the pagan idolatry that Antipas was having to stand against. But later on, the church, even though they still call themselves Christians, and even though they held to the name of Jesus, they began to worship just like the pagans around them. They began to live in the world and be part of the world rather than to be separate from the world. And worldliness had come into the church, rather than the church going into the world with the good news of Jesus. Now, it says they held their name, but Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that many will call to me and say, Lord, Lord. Many will call to me and say, Lord, Lord. And he said he would declare to them on that day, I never knew you. So even though Jesus says you're holding on to uh, my name and you're holding on to faith, you're still living in the world. And so then he says, uh, he, he says, but I have a few things against you. 
The world is, in, is constantly enticing Christians into idolatry. Jesus lived in the same world that we live in, and we lived in the world that the Pergamum church lives in. We still live in the same exact world today. We can't say that temptation is any worse today than it was then. Jesus was tempted in all things, the Bible says, and yet he was without sin. It is easier to not be a Christian in today's society. I'll grant you that. Whenever you take on the name of Christ, you make an enemy. You make an enemy who is the prince of the power of the air. I mean, we talk about all the time, and we sing, This is my Father's world. That's a beautiful hymn. But I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says this world is in the hands of the enemy. It's in the hands of Satan. That he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this world. And he's alive and well, and he is tempting every single one of us to walk out of the church and back into the world. And that's what he wants for you and me. We are behind enemy lines as Christians. Revelation 12, 12, the, the revelator, John the Revelator says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So what is he doing? He's seeking to entice you and me to go back into the world. And so you hear the compliment is that they are still holding on to the name of Jesus. They're still coming to church. Hey, that's a good thing. Amen. They're still coming to church. They still call themselves Christians. And they still have faith, even if it's shaking a little bit. But they got to quit going after the world. And so here's the complaint. You got the compliment. Here's the complaint. He goes on to say, yet, uh, but, verse 14, I have a few things against you. You say, well, say well, that's not very nice. I mean, at least they're going to church. At least they call themselves Christians, right? I mean, th those are good things. And Aaron, we're supposed to love the sinner, hate the sin, love the sinner, right? But Jesus loves the sinner enough not to leave them where they are and to tell them where they're wrong. And for some of you out there, listen, the Lord Jesus is telling you you're in the world and you need to and you're becoming of the world and you need to get back out of that world. And you need to get back in the word instead. So the teaching of Balaam, notice it's, it, it all begins with teaching. It all begins with just letting it slip in just a little bit into the teaching. He says, um, I have this a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You say, who is Balaam and what is that about? Well, if you know your Bible, you can go back to the book of Numbers. Numbers in the Bible, uh, that, the book of, that, of Numbers in the Old Testament. Numbers 22, it talks about how the children of Israel were going through the desert. This is after they had been told they were going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And so they're wandering around in the desert. And they're passing through the land of Moab. It's out in the desert on the other side of the Jordan River from Israel where they should have been. Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us. As ox licks up the grass of the field, so Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pether, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammon, to call to him, saying, Behold, 
A people has come out of Egypt. Well, who's the people? The nation of Israel. They've come out of Egypt. Okay? They cover the face of the earth. I mean, it's upwards of a million people, maybe, uh, maybe two million people by this time. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. They're getting close to us. So he tells, so Balak is telling Balaam, he says, Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balaam is this, this uh, soothsayer, this divin, uh, person that practices uh, divination. And, he, and Balak calls to him, he's the king of Moab, and he says, you need to come curse Israel so I can defeat them, or else they're going to overrun us. They're just going to take over. How do you think God feels about that? Curse God's people? Yeah, right. Not going to happen. So, it, so at first, God forbade Balaam. He said, you're not going. He said, you're not even going to go to Balaam. Just ignore him. When he persisted, God said to Balaam, Fine, you go, but you have to do only and exactly what I tell you to do. That's it. Because God wasn't going to allow his people to be cursed. And then when Balaam neared the borders of the camp of Israel, the angel of the Lord, knowing the heart of Balaam that he was going to go to curse the people, the angel of the Lord stood in front of his donkey. You remember the story? Three times the angel of the Lord is in the, in the road and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord. Balaam doesn't see the angel, but the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and he turns aside and he goes, she goes off into the field with Balaam. And Balaam gets mad. What's wrong with you, donkey? Jumps off the donkey, beats the donkey and pulls the donkey back up on the road, gets back up on the donkey and starts again. Second time, they're going through a narrow passage and, and the angel of the Lord stands in the narrow passageway and there's nowhere for that donkey to go. So the donkey tries to get out of the way and smashes Balaam's leg up against the wall, up against the, the rock wall. Ba- Balaam is infuriated. What is wrong with my donkey? He jumps off the donkey, slaps the donkey around a few more times, gets back on the donkey, gives her a good spur in the side, and the donkey takes off. But then there's the angel of the Lord again. And this time the donkey says, this ain't happening. And she just lays down. She lays down. And, and, and Balaam has no idea that the angel is standing there with a sword drawn ready to cut his head off. He doesn't have any idea. And so he starts slapping the donkey around again. And the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. And the donkey says, Have I ever treated you like this before? I've been your donkey your whole life. I've never done this to you before. And so Balaam starts having a conversation with a donkey. And the donkey sharing the word of God. God speaking through the donkey. It makes me think, if God can speak through Balaam's donkey, he can speak through me. (laughs) Amen. That gives me courage as a preacher. Because I think I'm just nobody from Rankin County, Mississippi. Country hit. But God can speak through a donkey. He can speak through a country preacher. And so so right then in that moment, Balaam says, No, I don't guess you ever have treated me like this before. Talking to a donkey. I mean, I think the man's crazy, but he's talking to his donkey. And then God opens up Balaam's eyes. And he's able to see the angel. He opens up his eyes, sees the angel, 
And the angel says to Balaam, listen, she's seen me, and here I am. I'm opposing you because you have gone to curse the people of God. And God's not going to allow that. The Bible says he, in, the angel of the Lord encircles the people, the camps of Israel. And Balaam was crossing that border with a curse in his heart against the people. Well, fast forward. Balaam is told, once again, you better do it the way God says it, and only the way God says it. He, they set up the altars, and they cry out to God four different times, and God sends the oracle, and every time it's a blessing on Israel and a curse on everybody else that's opposing Israel. And Balaam is like, listen, this is what God said. God's not going to curse the people of Israel. And so Balak, the king of Moab, is angry, and he sends him away furious. They realize they cannot curse the people of God. God won't allow it. But they devise this plan a little bit later on. Balaam and Balak evidently get together at some point. And, and they have a discussion. And Balaam says to Balak, listen, we can't curse them, but what we can do is we can corrupt them. We'll entice the people of Israel. They're going to come through the land of Moab, and while they're there, we're going to entice them with, with drunkenness and sexual immorality and idolatry, and we're going to get God to resist them because of their immorality. Isn't that evil? Now, can you think of a nastier thing to make God go against someone else by getting them over into the bar with you or getting them over into idolatry with you? Isn't the world in doing that all around us? And then what the Bible reveals to us is that there's people all around us doing that today in the church. Numbers 25, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to their sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. The world in the people of God. Peter says, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be called and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed with their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Peter says that these people are among you at your feasts. Jesus talks about woe to those that cause, that put stumbling blocks in front of the people of God. Woe to those. And if you ever cause a brother or sister to go down that road, you need to repent. You need to say, listen, I, I know I, I'm sorry. I led you astray. And I love you enough to tell you what I said was wrong and what I did was wrong, and you don't need to do it. But instead, these people that had come into the church of Pergamum were telling people that they should worship these other gods alongside the Lord Jesus. And he equates this to the teaching of a, of a sect of that church called the Nicolaitans. Now, they're all throughout 
this area, and we're going to find out who the queen of the Nicolaitans was, was Jezebel. We're going to find all about Jezebel later on. Y'all hold on and stay with us until we get there. But this group taught that you could compromise with the world. A little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the world too. That you can you can go to the bars on Saturday and, and get drunk and do all those things and then you can come to church on Sunday and get all cleaned up. And God's okay with all of that. You can live like the world Monday through Saturday and then come and do your religious duty on Sunday. Or even worse than that, you can continue to engage and live in a, a, a sinful lifestyle. I heard about a pastor this past uh, couple of weeks ago, Andy Stanley. Y'all know who, who he is. Most of you do. Andy Stanley was telling a conference of people that, and he was complimenting the LGBT community for their faith. And he was telling them that, that their faithfulness in going to church sets them apart from everybody else, that they are just faithful. Because they were willing to go even though they would be hated. And I don't know about any of yeah, We've talked about this. I talked to Brother Chris about this. I don't know of any of them that are going to churches where they're hated. I think they're all going to churches that accept that lifestyle and say it's okay. But Andy Stanley said something. That, that's aside the point. We love those people in the LGBT community. We love them and we welcome them. But we love them enough to tell them that the Lord Jesus calls them out of that sinful lifestyle. Okay? And they can't have their sin in Jesus too. Okay. The same thing we would tell a drunkard or a liar or a thief or a blasphemer. that You've got to come out of that. The Lord Jesus is calling you out of it. So, so that's aside the point. But what Andy Stanley says, he starts talking about the Word of God and he starts talking about these passages that condemn that lifestyle and he calls them clobber passages. They were just going to bash people with those passages. And I'm going to tell you something right now. That that's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That the Word of God is not a clobber book. The Word of God is meant to sanctify us and clean us up and make us holy. And so what, what the Lord would say to someone who's living in that sin is that they need to come out of it. They need to come out of the world. Don't be of the world. James 4, 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Worldliness steals our worship away from the Lord. Satan keeps us just too busy to do the work of God. He keeps us too distracted to focus on the will of God. He keeps us too occupied to engage in the worship of God. We think about the, the worldliness of our worship sometimes. The world around us is engaging in all these things. Christians get caught up in it too. Entertainment. Sports gods. You can still watch the Super Bowl and not worship it. You can. But some people get caught up in it. Electronic kinds of worship like computer screens. It's especially pertinent for the young people and all the nasty, filthy, ungodly things that are there for us to just consume. The worship of celebrities. I mean, if I hear anything else about Princess Kate and whoever the other ones are, I'm just absolutely just baffled why people are worried about all of their lives. 
And then excessiveness, entertainment, excessiveness. This is materialism. It's the God of mammon. And then egotism, power, fame, prestige, worldly success, pride. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. James condemns this in Acts 15 at the Jewish council. He says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what has been strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell, he said. Worldly worship is a redirection of the resources that God has given you. The time, the talents, the ability, everything that God has given you, it's a redirection of that into worldly things. Your selfish purposes. And we can compromise. And we give just a little bit here and a little bit there. You know how it starts? That slippery slope starts with just one drink. It starts from just one touch. That's inappropriate. One look. One click. And then you find yourself down that road. And that's where it starts. It's a road of compromise. Someone said the smiles of the world are more dangerous than their frowns. See, the world's going to come alongside you and say, yeah, that's good. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to hurt to take that just one drink. It's not going to hurt to do that one thing. It's not going to hurt anything. In fact, I mean, why are you trying to be such a religious prude? You know, get over yourself. Come on over here just a little bit with us. The smiles of the world are more dangerous than their frowns. And when the world is frowning on you, know that the smiles of heaven are upon you. Genesis 13, 12, in the King James Version, Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. I want you to think about that for just a second. All it took was for Lot to turn his back on Abraham and turn his, back, turn his face toward Sodom. And then a little while later, you see him doing business in Sodom. And then a little while after that, guess what? Where is Lot? He's living in Sodom. It's a slippery slope when we begin to compromise. We've got to decide to never compromise. And so that's the complaint. But I want to tell you, I want to uh, give you thirdly, though, the command. So here's the command, and it's very simple. This is what he tells them to do. Therefore, repent. I want you to all say that word with me. We're going to say it together. You ready? Repent. What does repent mean? It means you're going in the direction, you, you, just like Lot, you've turned your tent toward the world and the things of the world, and the Lord tells you to turn the other way. And that's what repenting means. It means saying no to sin, saying no to worldliness, and saying yes to Jesus. But you can, because you can't have Jesus and your sin too. You've got to say no to sin. He's calling us all out of this. Johnny Cash said this, How well I've learned that there is no fence to sit on between heaven and hell. 
there's a deep wide gulf, a chasm, and in that chasm is no place for any man. You can't live in between. It's either Jesus or the world. You can't have both. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. In other words, he's not saying that we don't go into the world with the, with the gospel. We go on mission with the gospel into the world. What he's saying is we don't live with the world. We come out of it and we're separate. So Jesus called them to turn away from sin. I, I think about what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if my brother, y'all just think about this with me. If my brother was murdered, and he was he was killed. And the murderer of my brother was out and about. And I began to consort with him and spend time with him and befriend the murderer of my brother. What would people begin to say about me? That I was in on it. That I was part of it. And what C.S. Lewis concludes is he says, this is the exact same thing whenever Christians live in sin and in the world because the world and the sin that's in the world is what put Jesus on the cross. He died for our sins so that we could be set free from our sin. How can we who have been forgiven of our sins continue in it? Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We died to sin. And so he calls us to repent. The love of God and the love of the world and the things of the world can't coexist in the same heart. I've heard that people talk about carnal Christians and worldly Christians. And I want to tell you, that's an oxymoron. I'm not calling you a moron if you're a worldly Christian. What I'm saying is, it doesn't make sense to me. There is no such thing. Listen to what 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, if you're living in sin and you don't have a problem with it at all, and you don't feel the need to repent, and the, Lord, the Holy Spirit isn't calling you out of it, you need to check it, because you're probably not saved. You're not a Christian. If you can go about your sin and think that you have Jesus too. It's black and white. Either you're on our side or you're not. You can't play both sides of the field. There can be no compromise with the devil. Luke 13, 5. No, I tell you, Jesus said, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's the command, repent. Some of you have pitched your tent that direction and you need to turn this thing around. You need to allow the Holy Spirit's conviction to fall upon you right now because of the word of God. And you need to say no more of this Click clicking, no more of this tipping, no more of this touching. I'm saying no to sin. And I'm saying yes to Jesus. Now here's the consolation. and I love this consolation. Man, if you don't get this, your heart's hard. Your wood's wet. 
if it doesn't set a fire under you. Listen to it. Verse 17, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. Remember, we conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. What, is, what hidden manna? I'm going to reach in to the oven in the back and I'm going to pull out a biscuit. And you're going to get to have some of my biscuits. Amen to that. I heard about a man who went to work and um, he had a hard day at work. His wife knew that he had a hard day at work. And uh, when he got home, she was in the kitchen. She was in tears. She was crying. And he came in and he said, honey, why are you crying? She said, I, I know that you were having a hard day at work. And so I made you a pan of my biscuits. And I knew because I know you love them. But the dog jumped up on the counter and ate the biscuits. And he said, he said, sweetie, it's. It's okay. We can get another dog. <laughs> I love that joke because I think about my wife's biscuits. But Jesus says you're going to get a biscuit when you get to heaven. Somebody say amen to that. And then what does he say? He says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. And somebody say, whenever I get to heaven, I'm going to get a biscuit and a pebble, a stone. Do what? How is this a consolation? How is it a consolation that we're going to get a biscuit and a stone? You know what the point is? One taste of heaven is going to make it all worth it. There's not a thing on this earth that the devil can offer you that is worth more than a biscuit in heaven. There's not a thing on this earth that the Lord can offer you. doesn't matter what He gives you. There's nothing He can give you on this earth that's worth more than a pebble with your name on it. You know what that pebble with that white stone with your name on it, what it means is that you belong there. Hey, you belong in heaven. That there's a little piece of territory in heaven, even if it's just the size of a rock, it belongs to you. It's yours. And there's nothing on earth that can compare to that. Worldly Christian, if there is such a thing. Christian who's backslidden and in the world. God's calling you out of it. He's saying, church up. Remember who you are. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you're holding on to the things of the earth. And this is a sinking ship. It's under the power of the devil. He's offering you a counterfeit when the real thing is in heaven. He's telling you to repent. Now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you're not a worldly Christian, but you're just worldly. And you don't know the Lord Jesus. I'm telling you right here and right now, based on the authority of the Word of God, you can have your name written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lord will inscribe your name on a piece of heaven. And He's going to give it to you one day. If you will repent of your sin and you will put your faith in Jesus as your Savior. If you'll do that today, He'll give heaven for you.
I wonder, are you willing? Are you willing to say to Jesus, I need you. I need you to save me, a sinner, and cast all of who you are upon Jesus by faith. If you're willing to do that with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to pray a prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I've done things that are wrong. And I've failed to do things that I know are right, like you've called me to do. And Jesus, I deserve the penalty for my sin. But Jesus, I believe that you lived a sinless life, not like mine. You were living in the world, but you were not of the world. But Jesus, you died on a cross for me. And then I believe, Lord, you were raised on the third day and that you are alive today. So, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. Make me a new person. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I'll spend the rest of my life loving you and living for you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And thank you for saving me. In your name I pray. Amen. Now would you stand to your feet. This is our invitation. And this is the invitation for you. That if you've just received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. We want to love you and support you. We want to celebrate with you. Over the salvation of your soul. And so don't hold that in. You take this moment, this opportunity to come. And tell us what Jesus has done for you. We want to offer you resources and pray for you and help you grow in your faith. Offer you believers baptism, which you've already seen this morning, that you could participate in to seal the deal, as Drew said. If you're a Christian and you've been allowing too much of the world to come in, a little bit of the world is too much, but you've been allowing the world in. And it's time for you to repent. You come. This is your opportunity. Join us at the altar. Our altar counselors will be here. If anybody needs prayer, this is your opportunity. If you need to join Myrtle Grove Baptist, Myrtle Grove Baptist Church in full faith and trust, then you come. And we'll worship the Lord together here in this place. Let's sing our invitation song.